Well, let me encourage you, as David has said, to keep your Bibles open and uh, indeed to grab hold of this uh, handout if you like following these things as we go through for the next few moments now. I have a a good friend who's been suspended from his job because of his Christian faith. Uh, He's a resilient Christian man, but the pressure of being misrepresented, misunderstood and mistaken have taken its toll. Now, now let me ask you to be the pastor for a moment. What would be the dominant thing that you would want to tell him as he copes with his situation? A man who's lost his job just because he's a Christian uh, and this has been going over for some years now. Uh, It is something we need to be thinking through as these these kind of situations are becoming ever more frequent here in Britain. Remember the recent case in the media of the nurse who was suspended for offering to pray with a patient? A friend in the congregation gave me this recently. It tells of how an employee of a charity has been suspended from his job after he told a colleague that he was opposed to same-sex marriages and to homosexual clergy. It tells that he made the commitments during the comments during a conversation with a co-worker in response to questions from her about his Christian beliefs. It was one of those conversations that go on in work. He denied that he was homophobic and said that he had homosexual friends. And the following evening he was suspended from his job on the grounds that he had seriously breached the charity's code of conduct by, quote, promoting his religious views which contained discriminatory comments regarding a person's sexual orientation. I've been meeting with a member of this congregation about the opposition that she is facing because she has dared to stand up and proclaim Christian truth in her workplace. You see, it is happening more and more in Britain at the moment. Now tell me, what do you say to people like this? You're the pastor. What do you say? People who've lost their jobs and been put under huge pressure professionally, financially and emotionally because they have been faithful to Christ. What do you say to them? And not just to those in the firing line, but what do you say to all Christians here this evening in employment when I tell stories like this? Because every time we hear of these sorts of situations, you know what our temptation will be at work tomorrow? To keep our head down, to say nothing, to keep quiet, to compromise when an opportunity comes our way. Of course that will be our temptation. And what do we say then? What do we need to know if we're to keep standing fast in the gospel when those sorts of pressures are coming upon us now and in the future? Uh, Well... Keep your finger in uh, Genesis 41. We're going to come back to that in a moment. But um, just to give us a big backdrop, um, have a look at 1 Peter with me. Uh, 1 Peter, uh, chapter 1, page 1217. Page 1217, before we go back to uh, Genesis 41. 1 Peter, chapter 1. Now, as you're finding 1 Peter, page 1217... Uh, You'll know, many of you, this whole letter is written to Christians suffering just because they're Christian. People who lose their job because they're Christian. And so the whole letter is pastoral advice to people who are in danger of losing their job because of their faith and all those sorts of situations. What is the first thing Peter writes? I find this very striking. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he's given new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you. Do you see Peter writing to people who are suffering just because they're Christian? The first thing Peter writes to people like that 
he says is, praise God, praise God that you have the living hope of heaven as a guarantee. You are guaranteed future in glory. He says, fix your eyes on that future, on glory. That is the thing you must keep in the front of your mind if you are to cope with your present struggles. And throughout this little letter in 1 Peter, Peter says, uh, note the pattern of the Christian life. The pattern of the Christian life is like this. Suffering now, glory later. There is glory to come. Fix your eyes on the glory to come. But be sure, suffering will come now. And he says, the way you cope with suffering now for the gospel is knowing that there is glory to come, having your eyes fixed on that. Now that is what we will see in Genesis chapter 41 as you come back to that page with me, page 46. See, as we come to Genesis 41, look to see how the chapter ends. Chapter 41 and verse 41. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. What a surprise that is for those of us who've been here over these last weeks. Joseph, you see, knows all about unjust suffering. He knows all about wrongful dismissal. Oh, he's had it. He knows all about defamation of character. He's been thrown into jail through no fault of his own. Do you remember last week? But now, by the end of chapter 41, he has risen to, wait for it, the second highest position in the most powerful nation of the world. It's a great surprise, this, isn't it? And you see, this is a paradigm for the gospel, a pattern for how the gospel works its way out. Joseph, the one from a far-off land, the slave, the prisoner, Joseph rises to a high and exalted place. God's man, a slave, a suffering servant, is exalted and brought to a place of honour to sit at the right hand of the king. And Joseph is the one who is used to save and bless the nations. Do you see it there in verse 57? Well, because of this great famine, there was no uh, food in the land. And so we read verse 57, all the countries came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the world. Uh, because of Joseph's activity, people were saved. Now, does all of that ring bells for you if you're a Christian? It should make us think of another who came from a far-off land, who came as a servant, who suffered as a slave, yet who was exalted to sit at the right hand of God. And through his action came the salvation of many. The nations were blessed. Do you see? The story of Genesis chapter 41 is the story of history. And it is a pattern, a paradigm for the, the gospel and for Christian living. And so here in this chapter we see how God will bring about his great purposes for the world. A pattern for life. Suffering now, glory later. And in this chapter we see how God brings the gospel to the nations. First point then, to see this pattern. First point, God's gospel comes through the suffering of his servant uh, in this chapter, we're given two chronological references. Uh, the first one is in verse, verse 1. The second is in verse 46. It's very easy to miss these crucial markers when we read the Bible, but they are absolutely crucial. Uh, look first at, uh, at the first one, chapter 41 and verse 1. When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. When two full years had passed... 
See, as we come to chapter 41, two whole years have passed since the end of chapter 40. Do you remember last week? Joseph is still in jail. And so we're still singing, poor, poor Joseph, what are you going to do? Things ain't good for you, hey, what are you going to do? Joseph has spent two years banged up in a prison, hoping and waiting. Two years hoping the king's chief cupbearer, who, you'll remember, um, Joseph had got out of jail, effectively. Two whole years hoping that the, the king's chief cupbearer would remember Joseph and act to get him released from prison. Two years of waiting for someone to come down to his cell, rattling the keys, saying, it's your lucky day, Joseph. Two full years he'd waited, but nothing had happened. Joseph was, chapter 40, verse 23, a forgotten man. Two years, and yet compared to verse 46, that was nothing. Look on over the page to verse 46. Because in verse 46, we're told that Joseph was 30 years old. Now, do you see the significance of that? At the beginning of the story, when we started two weeks ago, back in chapter 37 and verse 2, Joseph, we're told, was just 17 years old. He was only 17 when he was sold into slavery. And so for 13 or 14 years, Joseph had been suffering as a slave and left imprisoned, wrongly accused. Now, through all this time, we know that God is working his purposes out. We learned that in week one. We've seen that through these last weeks. We know that Joseph will be exalted. We've already seen the end of this chapter. But the point is it takes a long, long time. All that time Joseph suffered. Do you remember the extent of his suffering? We saw it last week in Psalm 105. There's no need to turn to it now. But listen again to the words of Psalm 105. God called down famine on the land and destroyed all their supplies of food and he sent a man before them, Joseph, sold as a slave. They bruised his feet with shackles. His neck was put in irons. See, Joseph's suffering was immense and protracted. 13 or 14 years of physical suffering, of unjust suffering, Years of suffering, the agony of being separated from his father. That's how it is for believers often. Now that's how it was of course for Jesus. For those of you who have been suffering for, for years, remember this is exactly how it was for Jesus. Jesus suffered physically at the hands of wicked men. He suffered unjustly. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. Jesus suffered separation from his father as he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, suffering was the way of Jesus. Suffering now is the way of the Christian life. And so for those of you who are suffering now, don't think that something strange is happening to you. This is the normal pattern of Christian living. Don't think God has left you. He hasn't. This is normal. Why? Why is this the way God does it? Why this, uh, this dreadful suffering? Well, turn with me, if you will. Keep a finger in, um, in, in Genesis. And turn with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 2, page 1202. This is the last cross-reference uh, before we stay in Genesis for the rest of the time. Page 1202. And if you've never seen these verses, I think they might uh, surprise you. They might blow your socks off. I expect to see spiritual socks flying all over the room in a moment. 
Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation, listen to these words, perfect through suffering. Is that remarkable? Does that, am I seeing any spiritual foot socks flying off? Jesus was made perfect through suffering. Now that doesn't mean that he was imperfect before he suffered, but rather that until he had gone through suffering, he could have not been perfect in the area of suffering. But as he went through suffering, he was perfect through it. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 8 and see a similar thing. Hebrews 5 verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. Now again, don't misunderstand this. Jesus learned obedience through suffering. It doesn't mean that he was disobedient until he suffered. It means that hardship and suffering led him to a deeper obedience. See, anyone can be obedient when it benefits them. Anyone will be ready to and willing to obey God when it results in their comfort. But if you are willing to be obedient even when it costs you, even when you suffer, well then you'll be obedient at any time, won't you? Hebrews 5 verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. You see, the most impressive uh, Christian people I've met, usually know, uh, I've met, uh, have usually known significant hardship in their lives. Have you found that? See, there are some things that we can only learn through suffering. There are things that, that God wants to work in us that can't be done by, by sitting in meetings and Bible studies. Things that can only be worked out through doing life, through enduring pain and, and anguish and affliction. The school of suffering has excellent results. The problem is none of us want to, to go to that school. You see, it was true of Jesus, it was true of Joseph, so you can be sure it's true for us. We are made Christ-like through suffering. God's gospel then comes through the suffering of his servant and that is the pattern of, of salvation. Secondly, God's gospel comes through the word of his promise. Uh, back in Genesis chapter 41 now. While poor, poor Joseph is uh, languishing in jail, apparently as good as dead and rotting in a pit, we're told of, of Pharaoh's night terrors. He had two dreams. Uh, Fred read them earlier for us. They're in verses 1 to 7. The first was about uh, seven fat, healthy cows who were followed by seven thin, ugly, scrawny cows and the seven emaciated cows ate the seven fat cows. Uh, The second dream was about uh, seven healthy, good ears of corn which were followed by seven thin and scorched ears of corn and the seven thin ears of corn swallowed up the healthy corn. Now look, frankly, I don't think they're the most scary dreams in the world. But it seems when Pharaoh woke up, he was beside himself. You know, I had a scary dream the other day. I was dreaming that I, I, was, uh, I was eating a giant marshmallow. <laughs> I, I did. And when I woke up, my pillow was gone. Now, <laughs> now, look, that's a scary dream. Sorry, I know it's an old gag, but, you know, anyway, it'll keep, it'll keep you with us. Um, that's a scary dream. These don't seem particularly scary, but look at, look at, look at Joseph. Uh, look, at, um, look at Pharaoh here. Uh, verse, verse 8 of chapter 41. In the morning his mind was troubled. So he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. 
See, as we read out that verse, we should be screaming out. We know someone who can interpret the dreams. We know. In chapter 40, Joseph had interpreted the dreams of Pharaoh's baker and chief cupbearer. And just as we're remembering that, so we read verse 9, the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, oh, today I'm reminded of my shortcomings. And he tells the story of what happened when he was in, in jail. Uh, and verse 13, he says, And things turned out exactly as this Hebrew interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position, and the other man was hanged. Here is God, you see, fulfilling the word of his promise. Back in chapter 37, Joseph has also been given some dreams. Dreams sent by God to tell him that one day his family would bow down to him. Now that seemed almost unbelievable throughout the last 13 years. You know, he gets this great dream that he's going to, his family are going to bow down to him. Since then, everything's gone in only one direction. It's gone downwards. It just doesn't seem likely it's going to come, come true. But God had spoken. And now, you see, as Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, sends for, Jesus, uh, for Joseph, we can begin to believe that those promises just might come true. And now we see exactly why the chief cupbearer's imprisonment had happened back in chapter 40. It was all part of God's working to get Joseph in just the right place at just the right time. But of course Joseph didn't see that while it was all happening. It's wonderfully reassuring though, isn't it? God was working his purposes out. God had made the promise he was going to keep it. And so verse 14, Pharaoh sent for Joseph and he was quickly brought from the dungeon and when he'd shaved and changed his clothes he came before Pharaoh. The dungeon there, incidentally, is is literally the pit. Joseph was was brought out of the pit. And verse 15, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream and no one can interpret it, but I've I've heard it said that that, that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. I love that answer. See, here is Joseph. He's been in a grotty prison for years. Here, finally, is his opportunity for freedom. And yet he is completely faithful to God. You see what goes on in in verse uh, 15. Uh, Pharaoh says, I've heard a great deal about you, Joseph. I've heard that you can interpret dreams. And as quick as a flash, Joseph says, no. It's just one word in the original. Uh, Four words, I cannot do it. Just one word in the original, no. He's actually quite sharp with Pharaoh. No. No, I can't do it. You've misunderstood completely. But God can. Here's the mark of the man. Joseph has a chance to push himself forward, to to turn his career prospects around, but he won't compromise, do you see? Through his suffering, Joseph has learned obedience. And he's wonderfully loyal to God. Now we've seen that already through these verses. Already Joseph has stood up for God. And because he stood up and it's resulted in suffering, now he'll stand up again. So Joseph makes the point, I can't interpret dreams, but God can. And then you know how the story goes. Pharaoh tells Joseph his dreams in verses 17 to 24. And then we read verse 25, right at the bottom of the page. Joseph said to Pharaoh that the dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. And then, of course, he explains them. It's all about seven years of famine. Seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. Look at verse 28. It is just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming through the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow. Now look at verse 32. 
The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. Now do you see the refrain in this section? Verse 25. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. Verse 28. God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. Verse 32. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. God will accomplish the word of his promise. God has revealed what he's going to do. He has firmly decided nothing can thwart his promises. Now let me ask you, do you believe that? Do you really believe that? Do you believe that whatever you see going on in the world around you, do you believe that God's promises will come true? Do you believe that whatever your circumstances are, that God will do what he said he will do? That what God has said will happen? Do you believe that? And don't you think it would make a world of difference if we did? Of course it would. Now remember, Joseph had been through this time of extreme suffering. He must have wondered if God would ever keep his promises. Throughout this global famine, Joseph's family must have wondered how God would keep his people alive and fulfil his promises to Abraham. Remember the promise to Abraham? To make a great nation, to take them into the land, the promised land, and to bless all people through this nation. How is God ever going to keep that promise? Through this famine. Well, it's the same for us today, isn't it? When we look at the church, sometimes we, we too must wonder if God will keep his promise to build his church. When we look at the state of the world, the global problems, global terrorism, global poverty, global warming, global recession, aren't we tempted to doubt, doubt God? Well, what is God doing? Now, on the flip side, Pharaoh in Egypt was about to experience seven years of plenty. Must have been very tempting for them not to believe what God had said here. Seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. Just imagine when the seven years of plenty were coming. I imagine that that during those seven years there was someone in the government who would have suggested that the days of boom and bust were gone. It's very tempting, you see, to forget God's word when everything's going well. Isn't it? It's very difficult to believe it's going to happen when things are going badly. It's very difficult to believe it's going to happen when things are going well. That's how most people live. When everything's going well, when life is comfortable, they can't believe that God has spoken of a day of judgment. Don't you find that with your friends? You start talking to them about judgment day when their life is very well, they don't believe you. They think it's just just nonsense. You're You're off your head. It's always difficult to believe the Bible, isn't it? Whether it's going well or going badly, it's difficult to believe it. Through hardship or through plenty, we are always tempted to doubt or forget God's word of promise. The events of this chapter tells us God keeps his word, the word of his promise. And if you believe that, it will save you a lot of hardship and struggle in your mind. It is wonderfully reassuring. God's gospel comes through the suffering of his servant. God's gospel comes through the word of his promise. And thirdly and lastly, God's gospel results in exaltation for his servant. This is the last section, verses 33 to 57. It is, of course, a remarkable rags to riches story. It's a a story of total transformation. Isn't verse 33 brilliant? I love verse 33. 
And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams and then he says, now you've got to find a wise man. I love it. Pharaoh had already looked for all the wise men of Egypt back in verse 8 and none of them could interpret his dream. He'd been to everybody in the land to find a wise man. Then up pops Joseph. He's the wise man Pharaoh's looking for and then, and then Joseph says, oh, you need a wise man to help you now. I love it. I'm your man, Pharaoh. I'm your next apprentice, Sir Alan. That's what he's saying. And then verse... It's on tonight. You're looking forward to it? It's going to be great. Isn't it? And then verses 30... Anyway, never mind. Never mind. Think about that. Think about it. Verses 34 to 36 are an outrageous pitch to be the right-hand man to the most powerful man in the world. And Pharaoh loved the, the proposal in verses 37 to 40. You see, the plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. So Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this man in whom is the Spirit of God? So what happens? Joseph is given the second most important job in the most important nation of the world. Verse 41, So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Joseph then is highly exalted. As you read on, you'll see in verse 42, he was given the royal seal of approval. He was clothed in a coat, this time of just one colour, fine white linen of imperial office, In verse 43, everywhere Joseph went, his attendants shouted, make way, or as I prefer in the footnote, bow the knee. It's a great transformation. And you see, it is just the beginning of the outworking of the word of the Lord to Joseph in chapter 37. People are now bowing down to Joseph and he is reigning over them. No, it's not his family yet, but this is just the beginning. But once again, do you see the gospel pattern? The suffering servant is exalted to the highest place. Raised up from the pit, given a name above every name, that at this name, every knee should bow. That's the pattern of the Gospel. See, it was true for Jesus. It was true in another way here for Joseph. And it will be the case for us. Not that we will sit at the right hand of the Father, but we will reign with Christ. And if you want to take a note... Uh, write down 2 Timothy 2 verse 12. We will reign with Christ. See, the pattern of the gospel is this. It is suffering now, but it is glory later. And if I have my eyes fixed firmly on what is to come, I can cope with the suffering now. As we close, look how wonderful the glory to come will be. Look how this chapter in Joseph's life concludes. You see, he gets married in verse 45. And then verse 50, he has two children. And crucially, look at the names of the children in verses 51 and 52. You see, names in the Bible are very significant. Names in a story tell you about that whole story. If ever you come to any Bible passage and you come and you see a name, maybe the name of a place or whatever, find out what the name means and it will help you to understand the whole story. And that's what happens here. There are two names. Two names of the two children that are born Uh, to Joseph. The first one, verse 51. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, it is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. Do you see the point? Because of his exaltation to glory, Joseph forgot his sufferings. Now please, that is not to make light of Joseph's sufferings. We've seen that Joseph knew very real suffering, psychological and emotional suffering. 
Joseph knew suffering that most of us will never know, the irons around his his ankles and his neck, leaving him bruised and sore for 14 years. 14 years away from his family and in a foreign land, years of wrongful imprisonment. Joseph knew all about suffering. And I don't want to make light of his suffering or anybody else's suffering in this place. I don't want to make light of the sufferings of the people who are losing their job, one of whom is my friend, just because he's a Christian. All that suffering, but God didn't forget him. And once he was exalted, God took him to a most glorious place where he would forget the pain. And for every believer, that will happen in glory. Isn't that a wonderful thought to help you through? Not to make light of your suffering, but to help you through. In glory, all the pain of the suffering that you have gone through in this life will be gone. Just after the climax of the trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, Sam Gamgee discovers that his friend Gandalf was not dead, or, or as he thought, but alive. And he cries, I thought you were dead, but, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? For the Christian, you see, the answer to that question is yes. In glory, everything sad is going to come untrue. And that's why Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh, verse 51. And what of his second son, verse 52? The second son he named Ephraim and said, it is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Isn't that wonderful? Through all the sufferings, Joseph was made fruitful. God wants that for all of us. He wants to make you and me fruitful. It's what we saw in those Hebrews references. He wants us to become more obedient, to be more like Christ. He does that through suffering. In the words of Jesus and in John chapter 15, he wants us to bear fruit, fruit that will last. And in the picture of John chapter 15 of the vine, he talks about pruning. Pruning is painful, but it bears fruit. And you see, in glory, we'll look back and we'll see that was the very best thing for us. How suffering made us fruitful, made us the people we ought to be. See the pattern of the gospel here? Suffering now leads to an eternity of glory. And when we're in glory, we'll forget all the suffering. Suffering now makes us fruitful and when we're in glory, we'll look back and think that was the best thing that could have happened to us because we're fruitful and useful. That's the pattern of the gospel. And so now, through the hardships of life, how should we respond? Well, look, it's on the sheet here. Follow the way of God's suffering servant. Stay close to his suffering servant. Are you staying close to Jesus? Go the way of his wo- the word of his promise. Indeed, will you know the word of it? Do you know this book well enough to be able to recall it when you're going through those hard times? And look to his exalted servant. Look to Jesus and know that is the pattern. Suffering now, glory later. Know that even though you're suffering now, know that you too will be exalted. And that's what will help you through suffering now. Let's pray together.